0: We're live, we're live, we're live, we're live. live. On, on where there's a will, live again. I'll just get stuck in, I'll figure it yeah. out after I've, uh, I've actually done it. Alright, we're live. Yeah. This is my radio voice. Um, <laughs> how you doing Jeff? I'm here with Jeff Howard, um, the, the raconteur, avant-garde, uh, <laughs> maverick that he'd be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey 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 well uh i'm doing well how are you doing
0: i'm superb my man i'm absolutely superb the uh the year is done i did a i did a podcast with ad smith yesterday um oh cool yeah That's yeah great. i'm making my way around the staff i need to i mean i've i've these are part two with both you and you and ad so uh cool. i need to get some more more of the uh the falmouth the falmouth staff on on the podcast i think yeah, totally. How have you been, my man? How's, how's things? Last time we spoke, we'd uh we'd just gone into lockdown. You're uh, you're huffing down your microphone, a tad. Oh,
1: a I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. Um sorry. yeah, no, I'm I'm still learning the uh the delicate kung fu of keeping the microphone out of the way of my breath. Um so things are actually pretty good, yeah. Um it is a little weird, uh, to move to a new country and then uh, <laughs> know be there for a few months and then go into lockdown for three months uh so it's it's been different but you know um the shift to the online teaching went pretty well i think and i think it's going to go even better in the fall so yeah i'm 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 good what what have you been up to since uh since then well we had our
0: we had our expo which went yeah superb um and then right and then uh and then i've been uh sort of applying for jobs and then um and i've had a little bit of interest i had a, an art test for one company which uh, didn't didn't amount to anything and then i also had uh, an interview with another company that i'm still waiting back on the, uh, the response for so it's been going okay it's a it's a smart decision to uh to aim for something like vfx where it's uh, it's an underserved field right like you know i think uh you can probably speak to the fact that video game design that's quite quite a lot of people want to do that and there's not that many roles for it whereas like VFX it's like scares the scares people away because it's technical and artistic so
1: yeah, and I think that one of the things that kind of happened is that um, really proved the need for that particular niche because didn't you kind of um, you're almost like a Ronin contractor you were like a like a, a rogue samurai VFX guy between a bunch of the teams was was that was that right
0: that is how it ended up yeah I was uh, well b- basically you know uh, I'm just closing the windows here because I realized that we could get some disruption from outside uh, but sure. the, um, yeah so I ended up uh, well unfortunately due to personal circumstances of certain team members the uh, th- my team's third year team attendance went from not great to absolutely shocking. And so, uh, things kind of fell apart and I was, you know, I was, uh, the the, the team got red lit basically. We got, we got told like, you know, this isn't working for you guys. And I was like, yeah, you're right. We, this isn't working. Um, and so I ended up being like, you know, they were like, oh, do you want to jump onto a new team then? I was like, well, if it's cool with you, Brian, I would, uh, I would rather do this new thing where I'm a freelance VFX artist because I know that there are. Like basically no VFX artists in the academy and everyone's, well, not everyone, but like 95% of the teams are going to want some VFX. So yeah, I ended, up, I ended up jumping back and forth between four different teams um, and offering VFX help with them. And then I actually got, ooh, excuse me, I got um, employed by the, uh, by the Games Academy to uh, make VFX for their, um, the expo uh, space. Um, so that's a, yet another perk of being the only dude that is known for doing VFX in the uh, in the academy. Um. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, totally, and um, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated by uh, is the so you know uh, I I think a lot about magic systems. That's one of my sort of research areas, and um, so there's there's this the systems part of things, which is where a lot of my thought tends to be in terms of like, you know, is it is it a runic magic system or gestural or, or what is the kind of underlying systemic portion of it? But then there's also the portion of, like, how does it look to cast a spell and what kind of swirling beams of light and, so you know, um sparkling, you know, exploding particles and all that stuff. And I think I remember, uh, I may be confused as to who was posting it, but it seems like maybe Nate Bedford had posted some sort of... Um, vfx magic effects or it could have been you but but at any rate i know i'm really interested in kind of vfx element of of what it means to represent magic
0: oh yeah well i mean you know nate is um equally i mean i talk to nate all the time we're actually moving to bristol together uh, to get a house and try and work on our portfolios and get ourselves a, a nice sort of uh, we're also we're also starting our own little company together me and nate which is going to be fun. cool um yeah but um because you know why not? It does, and it costs like twenty three pounds to be established as a limited liability company, and then you're, and then you're good to go, and you can trade. I mean, you've got to send a, a tax return or whatever, but like, that's fine. It's not a big deal. I've got yeah. all of my friends are accountants. It's it's actually fucking weird how many of my friends are accountants from uh, childhood. Like it, <laughs> it's surreal. I know like five accountants. I have like five people that I can call and be like, yo, VAT, how does that shit work? But right. um. But yeah, so uh, Nate's obsessed with magic. Um, to be honest, I feel like you know you two should have a have a maybe I should get you both on the podcast at the same time, and yeah. we can have like a three way discussion about about magic with me just being a uh, someone who tries to represent it because it's yeah he he loves his um his magic and I think it's a it's a it's a cool point you draw because that is that is one of the funnest things to me about trying to do ma- especially concepting magic is it's like well where's the where's the magic coming from is it an innate source within the individual is it a innate source within the environment is it some manipulated force from outside the environment is it an alien force is it a an, an elder god force is it and, and all of these things even though it's subtle they have different color palettes and different shape language and different form language and they have a different force and timing and 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 um and to represent all of these things in engine are, is like you know it's it's a fucking struggle sometimes, but it is, it is such a rewarding challenge to achieve, especially because, uh, like I've bought this book. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, uh, it's called elemental magic. It's basically like an art guide, uh, to how Dis- it's, it's, it's examining as a case study, Disney and their, and their elements and their, and their special effects, like in a traditional sense. Um, right. but the, the principles apply to any, any visual <coughs> effects that you want to do. And, uh, if you, if you like all of the, the representational stuff, it's definitely one to sort of look at for the collection because it's, oh my God, the artwork in there is absolutely stunning. But the guy breaks down how to think about these things like anticipation and release. And he goes through like the different state, like, you know, starts with smoke because smoke's quite a, an easy one to represent relatively speaking and then um, and then he goes into liquid and then he goes into fire and then he goes into magic because magic is obviously the pinnacle of visual effects because while it doesn't, while it has to obey certain laws of physics for it to feel grounded and for it to feel realistic, magic is untethered by the actual laws of physics that apply to the world and so you yeah. can you can represent it however you want so yeah so something like really sparkly magic sort of tells the story of fairies and pixies whereas like you know dark black ichory magic tells the story of like elder gods and, and dark occult magics you know it's it's yeah. oh, it's one of the coolest things actually one of the um i'm playing in the D campaign right now and, the, and my dm has done an amazing job of having this like, um, he's using DD 5e as his basis, but he's also stealing some Im- influence from, oh, I can't remember what the stories are called now, but basically, like, the way he puts it is there was, like, magic imbued into the whole land before the event that he calls um, the Annihilation Wave. Uh, he hey. did call it the Cataclysm, but then my, but Nate Bedford, who's also playing in the campaign, was like, oh, what, like, World of Warcraft? And Angus is like, no, not like World of War, shit, shit, I've, I've done, I've copied World of Warcraft by accident. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so, um, so, like, there's these really cool, like, they're called, like, wind weavers, and they work on ships, and they, like, help guide the ships through these, like, dangerous passages and stuff. Um, but yes, I, I don't know, it's, like, I love magic systems is something that i didn't really think too much about until maybe like the start of the year when i talked to nate and then i've talked to you a bit more about it and yeah right and magic systems are so cool and like maybe you could um maybe you could talk to like the magic system in the the project that you're working on with uh with arcana because that's oh super cool
1: yeah, thanks. No, um, so first of all, I just want to say that, that your your thinking there is really good and extremely well-expressed. So um, when you mentioned, for example, the idea of a, a particles that tell stories, so sparkly uh, particles suggesting pixies, or you, you said dark ickery magic suggesting some kind of occult force, um, th- that's really well said. Also the, the bit about shape and form language. So anyway, kudos to you. Um, the other thing I, I guess I would say, so, so Arcana um, – Is it's a very long term project. Um, I uh, think of it as being sort of on the Dwarf Fortress development timeline, and of course, those two guys have been at it, uh, you know, for decades. But um, in a nutshell, Arcana is a ceremonial magic simulator about performing uh, occult rituals in a magic theater in order to. Uh, unlock the mysteries of the multiverse and so the way it it works is that um, on the surface um, the kind of front end of it is about um, sort of performing rituals in kind of a classic ceremonial magic tradition so if somebody were into like the magic of the hermetic order of the golden dawn which was a 19th century Um, British occult order, or even if they were digging further back into kind of the Goetia and the the Solomonic magic, they would recognize the sort of actions that you're doing. So you are, you know, standing at an altar, kind of looking out at your magic theater, and you are lighting candles, and you are placing uh, symbolic objects like skulls and roses and Uh, daggers onto uh, strategically positioned uh, patterns on the floor. You are filling a chalice with um, a liquid that might be blood or it might be wine. There's some absinthe that you can use. There's a brazier that you can burn things in. So there's kind of these ritual patterns um, wherein you 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 might light a candle to start a ritual and then um, place three skulls in the upper right-hand quadrant uh, in order to sort of project your mind toward the realm of death, a kind of other plane of existence um, the other thing that you can do is you can summon uh, entities from other planes of existence toward our own um, by offering them, you know, sort of a uh, something that would be pleasing to them. So maybe you want to summon the um, kind of Scarlet Woman of Babylon, and so you know she's associated with pleasure, and so you're kind of putting out an offering of candy and liqueur, and then you're you're chanting and you're um, you, you're really engaged in ritual performance as opposed to just sort of pressing a, a, a button on a um, you know, a, a hotkey on, a, on a, a bar of options to cast a fireball, which I think is is one of the things that kind of goes wrong in, in a lot of game magic systems, is that essentially that sort of magic as artillery and it's very sort of rote and mundane in in the way that it's done. The other thing, though, that I'll say about Arcana is that um, the back end to it, um, the inner workings of it, uh, is quite uh, sophisticated, and so um, I, I, I worked with a quantum physicist uh, who actually originally suggested the ideas for, for what's going on there but essentially um, there is an in dimensional um, physics system that's underneath the hood of Arcana and, and what it consists of, so there's six dimensions. And um, Unity, of course, is not built to handle six-dimensional physics um, because that, <laughs> that, that that doesn't happen in the real world. The fact but, but the math does way... not add up to six. right? <laughs> <laughs> but one of the interesting things you can do, and and this is what my my physicist friend pointed out, is is that um, you can model um, any dimensional physics within Unity's physics system if you just do um, projections of multiples of three. So in other words, what you can do, and and what is in fact happening under the hood, is that there are two, we call them meta-projection zones, the shadow and the umbra. Uh, And each of them is like a three-dimensional, like it's just a big box uh, that has the standard XYZ coordinates. It's just that each of the boxes has the standard XYZ coordinates. And what happens is that each of those uh, XYZ uh, axes, is mapped onto a sort of conceptual axis. So this would be uh, paired oppositions, poles that are opposite, Um, for example, um, life and death, uh, chaos and order, uh, good and evil, ignorance and knowledge, pain and pleasure, and uh, reality and illusion. And so what happens then is that any object which you manipulate in Arcana, any prop that you place, say you put down a skull, uh, onto the upper right-hand quadrant of the floor. What's happening is that that skull uh, has a location within the metaverse, uh, which is to say, this kind of six-dimensional physics system, and probably its address or coordinates within that um, system um, is, you know, uh, is basically it's positioned out on the death axis and uh maybe it's at 60 death for example and then it's got zero on all of its other coordinates so it's its location is is sixty zero 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 zero. 000 so for all of the six dimensions but what you can then do is you can say that a particular spirit that you are trying to summon resides at some interesting crossroads of the various dimensions so for example you could say that the king in yellow Uh, from the mythos of Robert W. Chambers, who who Lovecraft uh, stole it from, uh, or borrowed it from. Uh, The the King in Yellow, you could say, resides at the sort of crossroads of, uh, for example, maybe death, knowledge, and pain, because he's this kind of melancholy god. And so then what this means is that the summoning process Um, And the the process of astral projection both draw upon that physics system such that when you project yourself toward the realm of the king in yellow, um, what you're actually doing is astral bungee jumping. So you are (laughs) you are projecting your body, uh, your your twin astral bodies, one shadow body and one umbra body um, physically uh toward that axis of that intersection of um death pain and knowledge and um same thing if you are summoning something like say you want to summon the king in yellow to to our realm which is probably a bad idea but if you wanted to do it um you could actually sort of throw out a lure that is near him in his home location so maybe you you sort of figure out that okay like i could use a I could kind of string together a skull for death and then maybe a a book for knowledge and then maybe a dagger for pain. then I'm going to sort of put those in the center circle and then I'm going to start kind of reeling them in. So in addition to the, the astral bungee jumping, which is the astral projection um, there is also what I like to call astral bass fishing. So, so um, I I don't know if you have bass in the UK, but the, uh, yeah, okay. Cool. So, so, so yeah, It's it's you're casting a lure, like you're trying to catch a fish, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then it exerts a sort of magnetic pull on anything that it relates to in terms of its pulls, and then you you reel it in by, um, you know, placing more objects, enchanting, and all that stuff. So all of those those actions are, that on the surface seem simple, um, lighting candles, placing skulls, uh, filling a cup with absinthe, are having uh, unknown, hidden effects upon a, a um, an emergent, uh, sophisticated, symbolically charged physics system, and the result of that is that magic in Arcana is intended to feel uh, deeply occult in the original sense of the word occult, which just means hidden. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, it's 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 that feeling of of oh wow, I mean like the surface looks really simple, but then. After I mess around with it for a little while, I realize, oh, my God, there's all this hidden depth to it. And I could just there's so many combinations and there's so many possibilities and so many variables that come from having sort of a physics system, um, a, a, a symbolically charged physics system underlying magic. So so that's what Arcana is about. That's that's the intent of it. That's how I'm trying to put the magic back into magic systems.
0: That's, uh, that's the elevator pitch for Arcana. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, they, dude, they that sounds so cool, man. <laughs> like, oh my god, that raises so many questions on it. So, like, so, so my my glib little comment of like, oh yeah, vector math doesn't stretch to six places. It does stretch to six places. You just have to codify what each what each of the uh the extra places are, right? Like, so, damn. Yeah. So, so I'm just that that just makes me think because it's quite funny because obviously game engines themselves like. On a on a purely shader level, right? On like a purely like visual representation level, it doesn't exist right. in 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 um, three places because you have the place the position where something is, which is determined if you're in a three D system by the x, y, and z coordinate, right? But then on a shader level, you have the u and v uh, planes, which refer to an extra sort of hidden dimension of the game engine itself that writes what the materials properties are and where those materials define their colors and properties from um, right. and so you're almost tapping into a a a, an, a subset of self-designed uh, properties that that the player can influence so how does it how does it feel to play like so you're like I, the way i'm imagining it right is like you're in like a like either like a, a room or a, or, a, or a or a ritual space i don't know like a sort of like a glastonbury like a like a stonehenge style like area or something and then the player sort of comes into it and and places these objects and draws these occult symbols or is it more of like a like a flat table um i don't know if you've ever seen uh made by fail better i believe but the uh, the game cult simulator
1: yeah so um fascinating that you Bring that up. Um, I'm a huge fan of of Fallen London and Sunless Sea, and oh, um, so good. Fallen Skies there's... as well. I haven't played Fallen Skies. Neither that have was...
0: I. But the uh, the sorry to cut you off, but like the woman, oh, who, no. um, the woman who was their communications coordinator, or I can't remember if I met her at an event or not. But basically, we had uh, one of the one of the staff who would since left fail better, but they uh, they came in and gave us a talk um at Falmouth about um Sun the Sky and community management mostly but I was just like right. geeking out because I'm like oh my god it's the person who made Sun the like Sun the Seas and shit I need to play Sun the right. Skies really but yeah go on go on Cult uh, Cult Simulator oh. etc
1: oh yeah no 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 I mean I'm I'm glad that it's it's important to celebrate um Phil Better Games and yeah I'm, I'm glad that you got to meet um, a member of the team and yeah they're situation got complicated in, in relationship to, I, I, I won't go into it. Um, but, um, well, you know, um, so, so, okay. Um, uh, cultist simulator, I haven't played. And um the reason I haven't played it is because um I think I have anxiety of influence toward it. Uh mm-hmm. it, i was telling I was telling Tanya that the other day. Uh Tanya Krzywinska, you know, shot me a, a message and she was like, Jeff, have you played Cultist Simulator? And I'm like, Tanya, I'm a huge admirer of the work of um Phil Better Games and um and uh you know, but I'm sort of afraid that if I if I play it it might contaminate um my sort of thinking, and 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 I would be hard to hard pressed to sort of um, handle it. But here's what I know: um, I think that ultimately uh, most anxiety of influence is sort of misplaced, and, and I think that the reason that it's misplaced is that we learn from engaging with. Um, I'm not even sure I would call them competing. Um, products because frankly, I wouldn't want to compete with Alexis Kennedy. I, you know uh, What a, a talented man. Um, the, um, I, I think though that Alexis Kennedy's approach from what I've seen of Cultist Simulator, I, I read some of his, his um, development journals when he was first putting it together as an experimental prototype. Um, he's kind of using sort of a board game, a digital board game was the term that, that he used. And so the the idea of a card-based system Mm-hmm. And the notion of, um, having effectively a day job which is which is the work that you're doing and then I heard a talk with him at GDC where he was talking about Cultist Simulator I guess it was his postmortem for it and he said that there was intended to be an opposition within Cultist Simulator between your day job which is your work with a lowercase w and your uh, your your magic your pursuit of of the occult sciences which is the great work with a capital g capital w which is the ancient alchemical term for uh, seeking you know the philosopher's stone and the ultimate spirit. Spiritual knowledge for magic and all of that. And so, what he was interested in was kind of using the rhythm of your card placement to suggest the balancing of these various kind of tasks and priorities that you had so um you know he was demonstrating that you, you had to um you had to always place the cards for your day job um because if you ever stop doing that then um it's pretty much impossible to um pursue the alchemical stuff And so anyway i find it absolutely fascinating and um yeah i guess i should say um, I'm, I'm kind of uh, circling ar- around this point because it's, it's a difficult thing to talk about. Perhaps we end up editing it out at the end. But um, Kennedy, uh, it's complicated because you know he's writing a memoir right now called "Sex Lies and Video Games," which is about um, some controversy that surrounded his work at phil better and and i think it was ultimately the reason why he he left and and formed his own company and all that kind of stuff but what i will say whether we leave that part in or not um it's just a statement of fact
0: yeah mm-hmm. well i'm yeah. just letting you know we don't edit the podcast so so okay <laughs> well it, it's, unless it's, it, it's absolutely it's, critical <laughs> that we take it out like, I, I don't edit this shit
1: i don't blame you and you know i it's, it's it's so so I, this is a slight digression, but when I look at Alexis Kennedy and try to process what he means and what he is about, um I'm sort of baffled and it is the eternal um fight between can you separate the art from the artist um what does it mean um to have? professional obligations to the people who work at your company and also, um, to be a human being, which, which we all are. And, and so anyway, um, you know, um, I am saying that because, um, you know, my, my initial sort of stumbling about things got, uh, things got complicated, it failed better. That's, that's what that's in reference to. And, and if people, um, you know, uh, need to look at that. They can, but I mean, this is what I'll say is that, um, his work, um, whatever else is going on there is absolutely second to none. And, um, I'm glad you reminded me of Cultus simulator. Cause I think it needs to go to the top of my list in terms of, um, again, I, I, I tend not to think of them as competing products. I tend to think of them as things in the same space that we can learn from yeah, yeah. when we're doing a project yeah okay so so but to return to your initial question um which you had asked me sort of what is the kind of visual perspective of arcana and um you know how does it look and and what do you do um and and what's going on there is that um you are looking at a kind of straight on um it's it's a 2.5 d view in that we are using perspective uh and we're also it's you know it's it's sort of 2D backgrounds my my artist is this amazing dude um Thomas Van Uffel uh from Belgium what a he's an animator oh it's a wonderful name and and he's he lives in Ghent which is like the techno music capital of the world um but he uh Thomas like this is you know sometimes i call this game the arcana ritual theater uh, with the notion that that you are in a theater, and that the planes that you are visiting and the spirits that you are summoning are kind of spiritual entities, but they are also kind of uh, metaphorical theatrical representations. Because ultimately, I mean, we're human beings, and and we can only perceive partial aspects of Platonic, you know, entities symbolically. So anyway, um, you're looking at a kind of um, theater. Uh, with curtains and a stage and on that stage is uh, an altar and the various ritual tools and as you look back into the theater you see various um, swirling landscapes that could be fiery infernal realms of evil or they could be uh, the, the the swirling grayness of limbo or they could be the um you know they could be the the sort of uh, pink rose gardens of the, the world of pleasure anyway that's what you're looking at and but the the um, the planar backgrounds of are actually um, they they deliberately look like, look like theatrical backdrops so they are uh, they have layers to them and Thomas uh, with his animation training actually animated the various layers so that you can see kind of clouds swirling in the distance you get a little parallax um, sort of scrolling and so then what happens is that your ritual actions are kind of clicking on um you know clicking on the candle to light it or dragging a skull from your cabinet of wonders which is your inventory onto one of the uh foci that's kind of back in in perspective in the in the back of the theater and the changes that occur either through your summoning or astral projection are almost like they're deliberately sort of depicted as stage changes so uh the curtains curtains fade in and out and and uh and spirits appear as if they are dramatist personae as if they are uh almost um you know grand guignol um uh paper mache um figures so so that's that's kind of the visual appearance of things
0: oh that sounds absolutely awesome i uh i if there's a i, I should uh i should really give uh i imagine you've got like a dev journal or something. i should give that a look because it's it sounds so cool uh, the way it's laid out. Although I will, I will just touch on the uh, the the thing that you are are skirting around so carefully because you're a a, a, a clever and. and uh and consider an individual who thinks about his personal thing. But I, uh, I would say that like, you know, people, it is really hard to separate people's art from their, their actions. But at the same time, it's like HP Lovecraft was a huge racist. Does that mean his books are shit? No, but it does mean that you have to sort of, you have to view everything within the, and also I think sometimes it's like that whole don't meet your heroes thing, right? Like you, you, you're, you, you can have one person's artwork ruined by the actions that they carried out and you can have another person's artwork just stand the test of time regardless of who they were i think a lot of times it comes down to the uh how long it's been since things happened and and what they were but uh that's enough on that that topic matter uh so the um so for the for the visual style then i imagine you've got some like really gorgeous sort of hand-drawn vfx going on and uh
1: yeah um it's funny that you say that well um, we have some I mean um, Thomas was kind enough uh, somewhere in when we were kind of heavy in a development cycle he was kind enough to make some sort of um, summoning effects and, and some kind of pulsing circles and um, you know swirling things and and all that kind of thing um, he also yeah I mean, certainly he did the parallax scrolling for the for the backgrounds oh and and he beautifully animated the spirits, so a lot of them have quite complex rigs. Imagine the kind of rig for a uh lovecraftian rainbow shugath you know it's, 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 <laughs> it's lots
0: of tentacles.
1: Yeah, a whole lot of tentacles and kind of pulsing strange mouths and all kinds of stuff. He even did my favorite rig that he did. I think it might be my favorite piece of art in the whole game. Um, He did a knowledge spirit, which is a seraph in the classic biblical sense. And so it is an angel, a majestic angel with outspread wings, and the wings are entirely covered in eyes, and the eyes are kind of on fire. Oh, my God. Uh, It's really beautiful. So now what happened, though, and this is – Oh. Oh. a part that, that is oh you still there
0: yeah 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 we just had a, a minor technical hiccup interesting oh keep going problem oh yeah
1: cool the that was, so seraphs. so yeah the seraph well what i was going to say is that um we don't have a lot of vfx beyond thomas's beautiful animated spirits and and kind of summoning circles and things like that Um, because we are a small team operating on a shoestring budget and we all have um, full-time jobs. So what this means is that um, our kind of capacity to um, acquire assets and sometimes even code, um, you know, depends sort of on... um, friends who are willing to work for cheap so um i heard the phrase mates rates the other day which i thought was hilarious i'd never heard the idea yeah i'd never heard mates rates before um or people who are just you know working out of the goodness of their heart for for free um right now my composer for the game whose name is kyle morrison lovely um kyle is the um brand representative for casio keyboards and he is uh the sole member of a uh of a band called piano metal which is exactly what it sounds like it is metal music played on the piano uh yeah no it's he's incredible and yeah so he's just made all this amazing kind of neoclassical metal music for free and he's got um he's recruited some luminaries from the metal community um, who are also contributing um elements so so i think i can say that the drummer for megadeth is um doing some drums on the the evil track uh no way. that's yeah, yeah, kill him yeah 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 and also the um there's an, an ancient egyptian heavy metal band <laughs> From, um north carolina by the name of nile like the river and the bassist for nile is doing some some uh, laying down some bass on the same track um so anyway um s- small digression there but um we're essentially depending upon um people who are working for very little money or for free with very little time and um and yeah so so anyway i i suppose that if you happen to know uh any vfx
0: artists you would be interested <clears throat> well, in well i mean i, I myself <laughs> actually happen to be a vfx we'll talk after the we will talk after the podcast about this because i am super okay. hyped for the concept like yeah. the more you talk about it the more the more amazing it sounds man it sounds awesome and uh yeah. like you say vfx are a, a a nightmare niche to get hold of um right uh but the um but yeah so uh yeah we'll talk more after this uh the um so the, it, it sounds like, so this this is one of those games to me that sounds like it doesn't really matter how many people hear the concept. Like, you don't really need to worry about anyone plagiarizing it because it sounds like it's just your brain baby in terms of design. Like, I don't see how anyone could even, like, if someone was like, oh, I'm going to steal this idea. It's like, how do you even penetrate that? Like, it's, it's... Huh. It's so deep as yeah. a, as a concept. And I fucking love the idea of this emergent and I'm imagining like the way I'm seeing it working is right. You like, you put down your candle, you light like your candle, you fill your, your goblet with, with wine. And then, uh, and then, it, you know, like, you know, maybe you summon some great Sothulian God and he, and he, and he like turns the wine to blood and maybe you're not even fully aware of it as a player. And then you like, you put your candle out and go, huh? I guess that summoning ritual didn't work, but really you've moved your needle on your, I don't know, on your holy, on your holy meter, upper, upper notch, so that when you try and summon something dark and evil, you accidentally summon a seraph. Like uh, to, to me, yeah. it sounds like this constant l- set of tickers that, unless you're, I mean, I imagine there's kind of like a wipe the slate clean thing. I don't know, like murder a chicken or whatever, and and then uh, uh, it's
1: it's ring a bell actually, but murdering a chicken. Well, let's not murder chickens, but yeah, it's 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 ringing. Aha. Uh-huh. It, that's how you can reset things but no 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 you so so
0: go on though i'm sorry that i interrupted you uh no well i mean like that was my point was that this uh it sounds like all of these systems come into play and and maybe you know maybe you could you could tinker around in it for for i mean is the idea to have like uh, a a a multiple saves or is it more to have like a like a single a single uh character that you're you're playing through um, this ritual with, and then maybe you you summon something you didn't want to summon, and that comes and consumes the soul of the player, and then you sort of have to start a new game, or is it to have like this summoner become more acquainted with these different creatures? Is it is it based on an idea of having um, your the things that you integrate into this realm affect your uh, the 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 player character, or is it that your almost doing it to get uh kind of like a multiple endings kind of thing where you you're you're being affected by these different gods and depending on who you talk to affects the kinds of gods you can talk to in the future i say
1: yeah oh uh, you know again very insightful questions um so you know a mixture of some of those things are, are the aims um so ultimately um, it is a game about the pursuit of knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge is really at the heart of it. And so trial and error experimentation is key. There's, um, We're working to use narrative to kind of shape, um, to offer a sort of tutorial and to really guide people through the mechanics and sort of pace the way that the, um, the emotion unfolds. But at heart, it's about um, performing a ritual to, to go to a plane and therein Converse with the spirit, thereby gaining more knowledge. Maybe the spirit tells you where the, um, the great skull of Beelzebub lies on the 666th layer of disks or, or whatever it is. And then you go get that, that sacred skull, and now you have that skull in your inventory, which means you can do a summoning ritual, which maybe lets you summon Belphegor. And, and then, so it's this kind of loop of um, perform ritual, um, explore. Possibility space, gain knowledge uh, and/or further tools, uh, and then perform more rituals and acquire more knowledge, and and so on and so forth. That said, um, there is a an underlying narrative to things, and it has to do with the owner of the theater, um, who was a great magician, um, who immersed himself in his in his own. Uh, the wonders of his own magical theater in pursuit of of metaphysical knowledge, and uh, he went astray somehow. I, I think I, I tend to think that this has to do with um, making a mistake about what is reality and what is illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in other words, believing that the theater. Uh, is is the thing itself rather than the representation of the thing? I, I tend to think about um, the Magritte thing, the um n'est pas um pipe." This is not a pipe. This is a this is a representation of a pipe, mm-hmm. ra- rather than the thing itself. So anyway, uh, he went astray and I, and I believe fell into the clutches of um, some some darker uh, infernal entities, maybe even kind of a Gnostic uh, demiurge who uh who is invested in keeping people sort of trapped in the in the theater of the illusory anyway um you play as that guy's sister that's the player character Uh her name is eliza and she doesn't know any of any of the backstory she um basically just knows that her brother had a theater It was mysterious, and he's gone missing. And so your reason for showing up in in the first place is that you're looking for your brother. You um, quickly figure out that there are opportunities to communicate with spirits, which I guess is sort of the third pillar of gameplay, uh, the idea of communicating with spirits through various devices. So we have a Ouija board. uh, We have uh, a tarot deck. And again, Thomas Van Hoofel drew these wonderful tarot cards it's actually how i met him as he was showing me his his tarot cards and, and it's a custom deck um it's, it's not a full deck because he hasn't had time but it's got this kind of psychedelic uh it's like it's hard to describe his style uh it's somewhere between kind of psychedelia 19th century romanticism and maybe a little bit of hr giger okay. um Have yeah you it's kind of the, there's...
0: the artwork of uh, alex gray
1: yeah, 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 yeah. No, actually, that's that's a really good um, reference point because it does have that um, psychedelic quality. And I certainly asked um, Thomas to to dial that up. I don't think I ever mentioned Alex Gray, but it, it's clearly in Thomas's
0: visual DNA for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah. The, the realm. It's, it's funny you mentioned because all the talk of different realms, right? And then there's the whole psychedelic realm, which is. Has a, I mean, obviously, you know, people look at a lot of people. There's a lot of stigma attached to psychedelia, but there's a certain level of consistency with which people um, describe and relate experiences within that realm, right? Like, so, like Terence McKenna and stuff. I, I'm sure you've heard of Terence McKenna. Oh, like, sure. The, uh, th- like the the consistency between Terence's visions of of the dmt realm and the representations that alex gray himself sort of draws and represents of that realm and there's a i don't know there's a certain level of consistency and it makes you wonder is there another plane of consciousness or something that people are tapping into through their, their experiences with these, these substances and these, these states of mind, even, because it's not even necessarily that you need the substances. People talk about reaching a DMT like state through specific types of meditation, right? Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, you are onto something in Incredibly important. And I just turned around as you were talking so that I could face my, my, one of my bookshelves, because I've got a book on my shelf that's called DMT Dialogues. And it was, <laughs> it was from a, it was from a conference. Um, I, I believe the book was actually edited by Eric Davis, who wrote a book called Technosis, which is, um, subtitle is Myth, Magic and Mysticism in the Age of Information. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a very influential book uh book in kind of my repertoire because it was one of the first times that i saw somebody sort of explicitly say that things like the internet and cyberspace and and computer games could have uh spiritual significance occult significance so anyway um eric davis edited this book dnt dialogues and i'll tell you why i bought it i was in uh, a bookstore in the ozarks uh so i'm i'm from uh in the united states i'm from originally from arkansas which is a southern state and it has the ozark mountains which are these just beautiful wooded um thick green uh, rolling hills and up in the ozarks there's a a former resort town called eureka springs uh, that uh used to be like a um in the 19th century, it had uh, mineral bathhouses. So you could bathe in the hot mineral waters and it was supposed to heal and this kind of stuff. Anyway, um, there's this little bookstore that I went to ever since I was a kid called Gazebo Books. And uh, I was going through their like, they're basically the, their weird section, which was their kind of esoterica, psychedelia section. And I found the DMT dialogues and I was flipping through it and I saw the name of this essay, which was, I'm not gonna get the title entirely right, but it was close to what I'm gonna say. It was on the ontological status of entheogenic entities. And I knew at that moment, I had to buy that book, <laughs> and, and, and and because because that, because that's ringing all kinds of bells in my mind. So the first thing is is the part on the ontological status. Um, so I was writing this book. I was co-authoring a book um, with my my former colleague, rest in peace, uh, Dr. Steve Graham, who who unfortunately passed away recently. But uh, the book we were working on was called The Ontologist's Manifesto, and and so um, for those unacquainted, about- ontology. Ontology um, in metaphysics or philosophy, it is the study of being and what is. Uh, in computer science, it is the study of what objects and classes of objects exist within a formal representation of a system so if a programmer does like um, a class structure diagram if they're doing object oriented programming in C sharp and they do a diagram of their um, the class structure. So they say, well, there's this class, that's like a vehicle. And then, um, within the vehicles, there could be driving vehicles and flying vehicles and so on and so forth. That's, that's an ontology. So ontology is interesting because it, ultimately it is about what is, what exists, but it is, it has simultaneous applications in both philosophy and, and computer science. Anyway, to say on the ontological status of entheogenic entities, um, entheogenic, which I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing, but but those those would be these these sort of entities that you would encounter through the use of, of chemicals like DMT. So famously, um, mechanical elves. T- yeah, mechanical elves. Thank you. You you got it. Yeah, that that was that was the one. And and um, you mentioned consistency and question because. If so, so DMT again, I bet a lot of our listeners know, but but DMT is uh, is dimethyltryptamine and it is a uh chemical compound, um, which um you can um acquire from plants. So they're uh you, you go to the Amazon and people do some kind of um rituals in, involving uh, various sacred plants that, that DMT can be extracted from, but there's also the some there's a strand of thought i don't know how much evidence but there's a strand of thought that um the brain has endogenous the the capacity to secrete dmt endogenously and um there's a if, if you flip through the dmt dialogues there's a whole mythology behind this surrounding the pineal gland which is um it it it's part of the brain that it's gland of the brain that is located um, where traditionally the 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 third eye of of Hindu tradition and and kind of uh, the the idea of the chakras or or discs, uh, the pineal gland uh, is right there smack in in the middle of the forehead toward the front of the brain where you'd sort of expect the third eye to be, and so there there again there's a mythology um maybe that not that much biological evidence but there's mythology it's, it's, that the pineal gland not to cut
0: you off but the pineal yeah, gland yeah. is uh is basically it's a walnut that sits smack bang in the center of your brain um Good. and it it's it, it does it recesses where that third eye point is if you go like i don't know two inches into the middle of the brain is that huh. little walnut in the middle when you when you cut a brain in half that sits right in front of the cerebellum and below the two lobes of the brain and um there's a lot of scientific evidence uh of the the presence and secretion of DMT endogenously in the brain of not just humans uh-huh. but the brains of almost all animals um and there's also evidence uh to suggest that uh, DMT is one of the most commonly occurring natural compounds in plants the plant yeah. extraction that you're talking about is specifically uh-huh. to do with an MAO oxidized inhibitor which is uh-huh. a uh a thing that mammals that eat a lot of plants secrete in their uh-huh. guts so that we did yes constantly trip balls on dmt all the time Uh, Uh things like gorillas and chimpanzees and uh, cows have like this this mao oxidized inhibitor uh that is naturally secreted from your your gut wall but things like jaguars and Uh other creatures that are carnivorous like uh, predominantly don't have them which is why you can see examples and they've done uh studies of jaguars in the amazon eating specific types of plants which are fairly rich in dmt but not super high in it but because Ah. they don't have mao oxidized inhibitors they trip balls when they eat these plants um and it's quite it's quite funny because um the the plant you're talking about specifically the the ritual in the amazon the the ayahuascaros who are the the, the native peoples that participate in these rituals they take a root and a vine, and one yeah. of the one of them is extremely high in DMT, and uh-huh. then the other one has this MAO oxidized inhibitor within them. Uh, it uh-huh. also happens to be toxic, uh, uh-huh. of the MAO inhibitor, which is why when people take ayahuasca, uh, uh, ayahuasca they uh-huh. uh vomit and shit violently <laughs> within the first half an hour before they uh- have this uh, dmt trip but yeah so i, I interrupted you but yeah that's uh, that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that dmt is a naturally occurring thing and one of the most interesting things about it is that it's, uh-huh. it is thought that uh it is released when you dream so that is why dreams are so fucking trippy or at least in my part uh-huh uh-huh so, okay um first of all
1: absolutely fascinating Second of all, um, so I I was talking to, uh, so, so there was a staff member the other day we we were talking about, um, maybe having a GA podcast at one point. Uh, and, and, and well, so one of the, one of the staff was like, um, you know, maybe we could get, maybe we could get Will Jennett to help with that. And, and, and I, and I, I raised my hand in the teams meeting and I said, uh, I was on, a podcast with Volgen at once, and it was a trip. It was really <laughs> a trip <laughs> and, and, and and so and so now you you have proven me literally correct uh, in in that um you basically just unspooled more um, DMT pineal gland uh, ayahuasca uh, knowledge than uh, than certainly than I possess. so so very impressive. um I so. I uh you you clearly know what you're talking about at a at a deep level there. I would point you to the DMT Dialogs book. I'm interested. Um, yeah, the reason that I think you would like it is that uh it is from some consortium, some conference that Eric Davis led because uh Davis uh is part of he runs like a uh Institute for Psychedelia Research in San Francisco That's and what maps, um is it? Could be. I've only skimmed the book. I I've talked to Davis. He's an interesting person. It's worth. So his um yeah his podcast is called Expanding Mind. Uh, if you're if you're interested in checking out what he does. Yeah, cool. Um, but um the ontological. Yeah, sure. So um ontological status would mean um how real. And in what way are the things that you see when you trip on DMT and you know, It's such an interesting metaphysical question. And and when I read it, you know, it's like, okay, that reminds me of this ontology book that we're working on. And it reminds me of the spirits that you encounter in Arcana. And it reminds me of what happens when people do ritual magic and uh, is what they're seeing in their head or is it outside their head or is it partially in their head or is there any difference between those things? And to me, that's like the million dollar question, uh, certainly underlying the narrative of Arcana, but I think it's, it's just this, this deep, infinitely fascinating spiritual question because like um in the west uh there's kind of a materialist skeptic thread that that perhaps dominates our our metaphysical conversations a lot of the time and underlying it is this sort of um it's not even platonic i'm not sure it would i would call it cartesian it's certainly dualistic this idea that um what is real is is the physical world which can be objectively studied through the physical sciences. Uh, what is illusory are the uh, things that are generated solely by the mind and are uh, and those things are hallucinations and so in that metaphysical vision of things um you would not expect there to be consistency between um, hallucinatory visions that people have. I mean, because, you know, that would be kind of, um, you know, uh, think about the, the, the things that people report when they take LSD. So, so, uh, a classic one is colored rings on their fingers. So they're, they're trying to, uh, swing their hand in the air to get the colored rings to move off their fingers, or they're just kind of seeing bright colors, or maybe they're having a a synesthetic experience where they're, um, you know, they're smelling color or they're, um, hearing touch or whatever it is those things do not appear to have a lot of consistency and and that makes sense because okay if you're you know if you're just hallucinating then that just means your brain is is glitching and firing in weird ways on on the basis of these chemicals that that are just basically making your neurons go haywire but if Every time people take DMT or frequently when they take DMT they travel to some of the same realms and they encounter the the machine elves and the machine elves look the same way and they offer the same sort of knowledge and they they you know say if you learn to sing in this particular way you will be able to kind of bend the code uh, underlying the universe, then that really makes you pause, and and I think that that a sort of naive reaction to that is certainly one that I'm tempted to, and and I suspect most mystics are tempted to, is to immediately say, well, obviously machine elves are real, and so are all of the other things that that you that that you consistently perceive, and um, by but by phrasing the the title as a question, by saying on the ontological status of those things, uh, um, that lets there be a kind of sliding scale. Um, how real and in what ways, and um, I like anything game, book, movie that invites us to open up our metaphysics and and be a little less dualistic and a little bit more open to continuums of reality, so I'm really glad that you mentioned the DMT connection.
0: It's pretty pretty interesting, because um, if you listen to...